Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast, with me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Labour's anti-Semitism problem. Is it terminal? We talk to ex-Labour MP Ivan Lewis. Boris is on the campaign trail in Wales and has learnt the word pop-ti-ping. I spoke to his former spin doctor, Gitto Harry. And the Lib Dems, what is going wrong? Simon has spoken to Vince Cable to try and find out. Marginal seats will decide this election. We spoke to Conservative candidate Siobhan Bailey in Stroud, Gloucestershire, on how she's trying to topple Labour in a key battleground seat. Don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderorder at dailymail.co.uk and we'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. So it's been another turbulent week in politics, with both manifestos now out in the open. What did you make of them, Amanda? One of the most striking things, Simon, is they keep adding things to their manifestos as they go along. This whole uh, deal that Corbyn's offered, you know, for the women, the waspies, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Um, for the women who were denied their pension rights. And and he just plucked this enormous figure out of nowhere. Mm, wasn't 58, even, 58 billion. 58 billion quid, and it wasn't even in the manifesto. <laughs> and he admits that it wasn't even costed. It feels so Labour's kind of uh, is making policy on the hoof. Mm, well, I, I thought one of the extraordinary things about that was that... Um, it's aimed for women, I think, roughly between 50 and 60 years old. Women my age, Simon. Yes. Um, <laughs> and one of those women is Theresa May. So if Jeremy Corbyn wins the election, he is going to hand a £20,000 pension bonus to Theresa May, which is very nice of him, but kind of sums up why it doesn't feel very well thought out. No, it just feels literally someone who was sitting around in a meeting said, oh, what can we do that might grab us some some of the people who will vote for Boris mm. Johnson? Who votes for jo- Boris Johnson? Middle-aged women. What can we whack them? Mm. That's what it feels like. But I, I think what what is... Uh, we've had years when people have been complaining that both the main parties are just the same. And this was particularly true in the Blair and then the Cameron era, when it was hard to tell the difference. Blair kind of modelled himself on Margaret Thatcher in, in a way. Cameron kind of modelled himself on Tony Blair. You certainly can't say that this time because I think one analysis of the two-party spending plan showed that for every £1 the Conservatives plan to spend, the Labour Party is spending twenty. Eight pounds. Now, that is a big difference. <laughs> yeah, but how do they do that? It's basically privatisation. It's huge taxes. Nationalisation. Na- <laughs> nationalisation. It's basically nationalisation. Huge taxes all over the place, including ones that Jeremy Corbyn was um, exposed as having um, not even worked out himself on removing the married allowance tax. Um, you know, there's. it's going to be a completely old-fashioned socialist stroke Marxist economy under Jeremy Corbyn. But I, I think the, the Conservative manifesto, OK, you might say it's more prudent. But but on the other hand, there was, there, there was at least one massive fudge in there. And of course, the Conservatives are paralysed with fear that they're going to repeat the mistake that Theresa May made in the 2017 election when the now notorious dementia tax wrecked her chances. What did they do this time? having promised to come up with a solution to the social care crisis, they have totally fudged it and said, oh, they'll, if they're elected, they'll find some all-party consensus. Now, I can understand why they've done that, but that's a pretty cynical cop-out. I think it's very sensible politically, though, because if you think with the, the problem with the dementia tax was that it whacked two 
groups of people who are called conservative voters. It was older people who had their own homes and had hoped to leave it to their children. And it was the children who hoped to inherit their parents' homes. Mm. So, you know, I can see that I can tactically, it may be cowardly, but tactically, I think it's the right thing to have done. And there was one other thing that caught them out in a, in a, in a recent Conservative manifesto, which was they effectively said they'd have another vote on bringing back fox hunting, lost them a yeah. lot of votes. Now, this time, they haven't done that. So we're not going back to votes on fox hunting. And I couldn't help wondering whether Boris Johnson, who's done a bit of hunting, shooting and fishing his time, might have wondered what the repercussions would be with his partner, Carrie Simmons, who is a leading wildlife protection campaigner. Yes, she's very, very fluffy on all these issues. Um, And I think that Boris would have been losing something rather vital of his own anatomy if he'd gone ahead with that. The other thing that caught my eye on the Tory manifesto, they staged it in Telford, one of the key battlegrounds, and and they used it to announce that, hey presto, they would save the local Telford hospital. Well, I suggest anyone whose local hospital faces closure should invite Boris Johnson to give an election press conference and, hey presto, you'll save it. (laughs) And of course the other issue which has dominated the headlines is the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party. There is no place whatsoever for anti-Semitism in our society, our country or in my party and there never will be so long as I'm leader of the party. Ivan Lewis has been a Labour MP since 1997 and served in the Blair and Brown governments. Ivan, who is Jewish, resigned from the party last year over anti-Semitism. He's standing this time as an independent. I asked him if the chief rabbi is right that Jeremy Corbyn is responsible for what he called the poison of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Look, 75% of British Jews, maybe more, are terrified at the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister as a result of this election. A third of British Jews are talking every day about the need potentially to leave this country. That is the level of insecurity and concern Jeremy Corbyn, by his actions and his inaction, has created in the, in the Jewish community in this country. I mean, you said in, in an in a emotive, uh, emotional common speech uh, not so long ago that the um, majority of Jews felt they actually wouldn't be safe of the event of him becoming Prime Minister. What what kind of threat do you think would exist to Jews? Well, it will become a very cold home for the Jewish community. He has 40 years of form. And, and the point is he's had many opportunities since becoming leader of the Labour Party to say sorry, to apologise, to act on these allies of engaging anti-Semitism who are now members of the Labour Party, and he's chosen to turn a blind eye. I mean, do you, do you think effectively you, you effectively calling Corbyn a racist... Well, look, I was very, very reluctant to do that for a long, long uh, time. Uh, what changed my mind was the incident uh, over the last 18 months, two years that have come to light. The video which, when he talks about uh, British Jews having no sense of irony, uh, when he um, actually endorsed a mural which had all the old tropes about Jewish people and stereotypes about Jewish people. And finally, when he went to the National Executive Committee of his own party and stood alone and said, Uh, that you should be able to say the existence and the creation of the state of Israel is a racist endeavour, which means, of course, he doesn't believe that that state has a right to exist. When he campaigns for every other minority around the world this month to have the right to self-determination. So he is a racist in your mind? I'm afraid the evidence has become overwhelming. 
and also his inaction, his failure to tackle the problem. How can he explain, and the people around him, uh, the fact that there's been so many uh, accusations of anti-Semitism that have simply not been dealt with uh, by the party. Well, Corbyn, 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 was, Corbyn was put on the spot over this quite recently and he, he gave a very strong answer saying he'd done absolutely everything in his power to, to investigate all Simon. these allegations. Simon, within seconds of that interviewing finish, finishing, I have never heard of an organisation within the Labour Party, i.e. the Jewish Labour Movement, who tweeted and put on social media Jeremy Corbyn lied in his answer to the question of anti-Semitism. These are Jewish people who have chosen to remain in the Labour Party during all of this. I've never known an organisation within a party in the middle of an election call its own leader a liar. Do you, do you, think, um, do you think that there would be an increase in hate attacks on Jewish people if Jeremy Corbyn became Prime Minister, Ivan? Look, I, I, can't, I can't answer that question. What I know is that if you enable and facilitate anti-Semitism, if you don't stand up to it, if you don't demonstrate you genuinely mean it when you say zero tolerance, of course that is an enabler for people who think it's uh, legitimate. Well, that's, so well, that, that, that's the tantamount to saying that, well, that's saying the same thing. If it's an enabler, it means it's effectively encouraging more anti-Semitic attacks. But unless you adopt, as a, as a leader, look, as the Chief Rabbi has demonstrated today, leadership is about doing the right thing and saying the right thing uh, and showing true leadership. When, as a leader, you fail to demonstrate, you take anti-Semitism seriously, when you yourself have supported anti-Semites and anti-Semitism, uh, of course that is going to empower those uh, who, who, who feel somehow that there's a way of legitimising anti-Semitism as some kind of second-class form of racism. If it was any other form of racism, they wouldn't tolerate and they wouldn't accept it. Why is Jew hatred uh, either acceptable, or in the cases of those who say they don't accept it, they're willing to turn a blind eye and still argue that this man should be allowed to become Prime Minister of our country. It doesn't stack up to call yourself a progressive and want Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister of our country. Do, do you think he's unfit for public life, Ivan? Look, I think he's unfit to be Prime Minister of the country. He holds views um, which, it, you know, it's not just about anti-Semitism. He would tank the economy. He would be a threat to national security. All his life, this man has hated the West. Let's be clear about this. He has been anti-Western. And now he wants to lead uh, one of the West's leading liberal democracies. And um, I am very, very proud of my uh, Jewishness. OK? And for years, I was proud of my Labour values. They have asked thousands of people in this country to make a choice between their Labour values and their Jewish identity. That should be a source of horror to decent people of all faiths and none in the country, and indeed decent members of the Labour Party and the Parliamentary Labour Party. There are so many friends of mine who remain Labour MPs, Labour councillors, Labour members, and I would say to them it is completely inconsistent to be anti-racist uh, and to endorse this man to be Prime Minister of the country. Simon, it's quite painful to hear Ivan Lewis talk like that. It's... We hear it all the time from our own friends about this, this, this just sheer disbelief that things have got like this within a party they love. But the, you know, the cynical former spin doctor in me thinks, you know, this is anti-Semitism is factored into Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. It has been for years, um, even before the last election. Um, his pro-Palestinian stand, which gets confused with it, is very popular with a lot of the Momentum supporters. And I'm afraid when you look at the cold, hard facts of this, 
Um, there are around three to four hundred thousand Jewish people who ident- people who identify as Jewish in the whole country. It's a tiny electorate. Well, that's true, but I mean, I think most people would be absolutely horrified of at what course. goes on. Horrified, and and I I do think actually it's quite a significant moment because it's you don't usually get religious leaders taking part in election campaigns, and you have this time, and. I think it was a key moment, and he's also struggled badly in the interview he gave with um, with Andrew Neil. Um, I mean, it was pretty. Uh, Neil caught him out over this several times, and um, Henry Deeds, the the Daily Mail's um, political writer, said it wasn't so much as a car crash interview; um, it made the Hindenburg look like a minor explosion. <laughs> and I'm afraid I think it is damaging. Of course, we should add that the Conservatives have their own problem with Islamophobia, although it's nothing like as great as in the Labour Party. Um, but it's um, going back to the Andrew Neil issue. I mean, you know, these Rottweiler interviews are oft, often have uh, uh, kind of have telling blows in the election campaign. I'm just wondering who's going to nail down who's going to nail down Boris Johnson. Can he be nailed down? Well, he's been nailed down by Andrew Marr and in the past. These guys, it's this trick that's been developed over, you know, mm. since Paxman first did it. When, when was that? Summer? Oh, well, that was, was well, that last was, century. Yes, and of course, and that was Michael Howard, wasn't yeah. it? When in 1997, Paxo asked him the same question 12 times and Howard avoided it. Although I, I, I think later on, Paxo gave an excuse, didn't he? What was his excuse? He said that, um, that they were running short on the interview <laughs> and he just kept asking him the same question to fill out the last 10 seconds. Mm. But it has proved to be a fantastic interviewing tool because especially for on television, but still works on radio. Nick Robson's been brilliant at it too. But you can see the whites and then the reds and then the yellows of the politicians' eyes as they are asked again and again and they sink further and further down in their seat and they try and bluster. I think instead of having these political big names, they should call in Ian Hislop and Paul Merton. I mean, they ran rings round Boris in that Have I Got News <laughs> performance a few years ago. <laughs> Ghetto Harry was Boris Johnson's spin doctor in his days as London Mayor. Proud Welshman Gitto told me how he's been helping Boris brush up his Welsh language skills on Brexit this week. I bet you don't know what popty ping is in English, Amanda. I certainly don't. And the great thing about this election is that not only are are we the only party wanting to get Brexit done, but we're the only party who has a deal. And we're ready, it's ready to go, as you know. Uh, You just just prick the lid, put it in the... the, (laughs) Pop it in the pop-dipping. More seriously, Gitto discussed what, if anything, Boris could do about the persistent claims that he's a bit of a fibber. I spoke to Gitto after he'd met up with the sheep-shearing Prime Minister down in the valleys. Ghetto, you were with Boris in Wales. How is he? You've known him for years. Uh, he was on good form yesterday. He was back where it all began because the first time he ever stood for Parliament, unlikely though it seems, this old Etonian English toff stood in a place called Cluid South mm. and described it for years as him fighting Cluid South and Cluid South... Uh, fighting back and winning. He was thrashed, basically, as I reminded him yesterday, by about 13,000 votes. But he found that um, very hilarious. And yesterday he was in very buoyant mood. And, and uh, people generally think of Wales being rock-solid Labour, but but they, they voted for uh, Brexit in the referendum. Do you think the Tories really got a chance of winning back, winning, winning seats in Wales? Well, yes. According to uh, recent polls, they could win 15, 16, 17 seats in Wales. Astonishing when you think 
think, in 97, when Boris was thrashed in Cloyd, that they had not one seat at all. So things are different. And Brexit, you're right, most parts of Wales and a majority across all of Wales voted to leave the European Union. So that message of get Brexit done, or as Boris managed to say in, in pretty fluent Welsh yesterday, cobble high Brexit, um, is landing pretty well. Well, that's a soundbite that won't take off in, in England, that's for sure. Uh, and um, what, what about uh, oven-ready Brexit, one of, his, one, of, one of his other phrases? What's that in Welsh? Well, there's a delicious phrase in Welsh for microwave, which essentially is an oven that goes ping when it's ready, and we call it popty ping, which has got a nice ring to it. Um, and, and, and Boris hilariously just lobbed this into the conversation. Um, you know, we have a, a Brexit deal that you can just pop into the popty ping <laughs> and got a roar of applause, of course, and, uh, and raised eyebrows. Uh, and and uh, wasn't he talking, um, uh, trying to master some Welsh, talking about some of the problems in Wales, road problems and other things? Yeah, there's an issue with the M4. If you've ever gone down to the uh, Millennium Stadium as a great lover of rugby like you would know, Bryn Glass tunnels, horrendous traffic. Uh, central government has offered money for years to clear it up, but the Welsh Assembly has never decided to do anything about it. They keep delaying it. And Boris was saying it's clogged like the nostrils of the great Welsh dragon and it's time for a Conservative government to apply some decongestion. People often call Boris a liar these days. It's one of the charges against him that's stuck in some of the TV debates. How do you feel about that? I'm sort of baffled by this particular thing about lying because one of his great faults, as some people saw it, I always saw it as a great strength, was that he always did what most politicians don't do, which is answer the question, answer the question being asked, not some imaginative question in their head, and tell people what he really thought. That's what's got him into trouble over the years. So that traditionally meant that people questioned his competence, they questioned his seriousness, but he used to score sky high on integrity because people thought that what he said was what he believed. So so what's changed? But it does seem to go back to the bitterness and the divisions that have come from Brexit and in particular that slogan on the side of the bus people saying the extra money. Yes. And I think from one lie, as people call it, on the side of a bus, they've managed to sort of plaster that all over virtually everything and he how does. does he get over that obstacle? Well, the problem yesterday is he then had to explain this thing about 50,000 nurses and I know what he's getting at. You know, if you didn't have a Conservative government, there may be 50,000 fewer nurses uh, than if you do. But when you break it down, it's subject to dispute because some of those are nurses who are already there. I would just be so you know, whiter than white on the use of statistics. I wouldn't mess around with statistics at all. He doesn't need... It, but isn't it also his messy private life that has that has compounded the idea that he's not trustworthy? By definition, there's a lot of people in public life, a lot of people in business, who have misled other individuals. So you've either got to decide that the only people you want in public life are going to be, you know, pure as the driven snow, or you acknowledge that some people are a little bit sort of misled. Well, yeah, but, but, but politics, is a, politics is about character politicians are often judged mm. on character as much as their politics and I think that I think that's right and proper don't you it certainly is if you masquerade as something you are not and again this is why I'm baffled by the idea of Boris as a lie he's never pretended to be morally uh, superior to anyone else when certain people when I started off as a young journalist and John Major said we must go back to basics and everybody had to live up to this angelic reputation a lot of people fell short 
And it was mainly because most of them had been pictured with their kids and their wives and played the family card and the Christian and all the rest. Boris has never done any of that. So, Gitto, just remind us of Boris's Brexit rally cry in Welsh, please. Yes, it's very succinct. It's Cwbl Brexit. Just one word to convey get Brexit done. And he said it with, with feeling. Um, and I tried at the end of this interview I did for this show that I have, a Bidany Lail, be going out in a couple of weeks' time, um, to teach him two new words in Welsh. And what Pri-wini were they? Dog. Pri-wini dog means Prime Minister. I said, Prewini dog, Diochenvaur. And he said, Paint a guru or squalchanda, which actually means pint of bitter, please. <laughs> Pre Winnie Dog <laughs> Boris, I like that. Guto has been very, very loyal to his great mate Boris. Well, not that well, loyal. He talked about his problem with lying. Yes, but it, but he said that he thought that this was something that was very unfair. What it really does go back, as you suggested to him, to the fact that he has had this, you know, very colourful life, personal life. Um, that a lot of women find that un- they feel uncomfortable about that because they think, you know, what do cheating husbands do? They lie to their wives. So there's always been that. But then it was factored into Boris. So he seemed to get over that. But I do think that's one of the reasons why I haven't seen Carrie, his girlfriend, Carrie Simmons, on the election campaign. Um, she goes out and does a little bit of um, support for, you know, various MPs. She's never, She's not been by his side because it reminds the voter of this negative about him. But now Carrie's got two dogs. She's got Dylan the dog. She's got Priwini dog, the Prime Minister <laughs> as well. Um, but going on to Wales, um, Gitto's homeland, I, I think the um, Wales and Scotland are, are very interesting because traditionally very strong Labour areas, uh, but Wales voted Brexit. Mm, um, changed everything. And um, the Tories are looking to win seats in Wales um, which seems incredible and also Scotland I find interesting because again Scotland dominated by Nicola Sturgeon and the and the SNP for years but there's just recently been signs that the Conservatives are, are doing better than expected um, latest in- poll had SNP on 40 Tories 28 Interesting things happening up there. I think there were a lot of people just assumed that the, when the former leader, Ruth Davidson, stood down, mm. that the whole thing would collapse. They thought it was a cult of personality. And she'd done so well in the, the recent elections. So they thought it would all collapse, and it hasn't. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that there are a lot of SNP um, voters who voted Brexit. You know, we keep coming back mm. to Brexit. And the Brexit party has collapsed spectacularly oh. in Scotland, helping the Tories. So um, th- that'll be an interesting one to watch. Amanda, if I said a parliamentary candidate admits to having been a semi-feral teenager, which party do you think they'd be standing for? Don't answer that. <laughs> I'm too well, clever too. Siobhan Bailey is the very unusual, and I might add, rather inspiring Conservative candidate for Stroud in Gloucestershire. It's one of the marginal seats the Conservatives must snatch from Labour if they're to form the next government. I asked Siobhan about her non-true blue upbringing. It's fair to say you're not a stereotypical Conservative parliamentary candidate. Tell me about your upbringing, Siobhan. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm often described as not a typical Tory. Um, and, and I find that bizarre because there's loads of different types of Tory. But I, I was brought up in Yorkshire, um, single-parent family, brought up by my mum, really good relationship with my dad, state school educated. Um, and I think probably fair to say I had quite a chaotic home life at periods and... Um, Moved out at uh, 15. 15? Uh, that's a, that's a, unusual bit. That is an unusually uh, young age to move out of home. What happened there? Uh, semi-feral as a teenager, I think <laughs> I would describe myself as. Um, but no, I think it's, 
it was just a difficult time at home and there were a lot of pressures. And so I went to live with different facts in the town. I was quite lucky. I wasn't on the streets. Um, I, and there were some really caring, caring people that looked after me. Uh, but I always went to work at my supermarket. I had excellent discipline for going to work and getting myself up, um, getting myself up. To but there. it must have played havoc with your school studies, not having a sort of stable home life. Yes. Yes. No, I didn't. I didn't do as well as I could at school, um, either at school or when I went on to sixth form. Um, but I've definitely um, made sure I worked really hard since then and, and pulled myself up on bootstraps. So you didn't go to university. So, so, so what happened? I mean, you're 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 now a solicitor. So you didn't go to uni. Yep. So how did you get your qualifications? So we, uh, when I was about. 17, still working in my supermarket. I um I was looking for jobs, and um, my family, some of my family, lived down south. So uh, I found a job as a legal secretary, um, and I applied for that and and got that job. And the the law firm <clears throat> were just excellent. I mean, they they basically turned that job into a legal assistant role, um, and then helped me study to get my qualifications to be a solicitor. So it took a long time. I sort of did a bit of night school, a bit of distance learning. Um, to get the basic qualifications and then later on I went to law school at the weekend so what that meant was um, it was hard work and it took a lot longer than going to uni but I was working consistently throughout in a law firm getting experience with my own caseload from about 18 and then I, um, I when I qualified I already had um, a job uh, in place and no debt so it worked really well for me because I wouldn't have been able to afford anything else. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And now you're standing in in Stroud, and there's a, the, the Labour majority there. I think is 668, and it's one of the it's one of the marginal seats. Which, if the, Boris Johnson is going to win a majority, you've got to win it. So how are you how are you going to win over those 668 Labour voters, Siobhan? 687. You're, you're oh. giving me an easier time. <laughs> so yeah, we've absolutely got to win. There's um. There's a few seats that, that, that Boris absolutely needs, and this, this is one of them. And the, the constituents here are really aware of that. It's flipped backwards and forwards between two men, my predecessor, Neil, and the Labour guy, David, for the last 18 years. So I actually have an easy easy presence on the doorsteps because I'm a bit of a novelty. They've never had a woman <laughs> MP here, um, and it's a bit curious for them. So, um, so my, my pitch is we've got to get Brexit done. Um, to be able to move on to the priorities for everything that we hear nationally, but it is absolutely true. And as much as this is um, considered a Remain constituency, actually having stood on the doorsteps here for the last 16 months, you know, most people are totally fed up. But those Labour really vote, voters, Siobhan, what do they say yeah. when you go on the doorstep? Well, they're the most fascinating because they, they're really interested and engaged, but there is so many people are switching to us. And what, Why? The Why? What's the, what are the factors? They want to um, lend us their vote, a lady said to me yesterday. They're lending Boris their vote to be able to get Brexit done. And on other occasions, I'm being told that people are voting um, for the Conservatives because they can't stand Jeremy Corbyn. Now, it's not always the way. Labour voters are going to the Green Party here. I mean, Labour and the Greens are having a big spat, um, as far as I can tell, in this constituency. But the, the Labour vote is going all over the paper. It's a completely fascinating election this time. Siobhan, thank you very much for speaking to us and jolly good luck. In Stroud, they might not have ever had a woman um, canvassing. They certainly never had one who looks like her. I can say that because I'm a woman. Not that it matters. <laughs> you mean you mean she's a bit of a honey? She is gorgeous. Yeah, very, mm. very I think gorgeous. It, it, but will that 
get her, will her gorgeousness get her 687 no, extra votes? Certain, and, and nor should it. Um, <laughs> she, if she's going to win that seat, she's going to have to win it on merit. Um, but uh, I think it's fascinating how this election is coming down to, as a lot of elections do in this country, down, I mean, there's what, 30, 35 million people can vote. But it's it's always decided by about 40 or 50 seats where there's just, I think I saw this week, 35,000 votes could decide the whole election. I know there was one seat in Wales where it's about 26 votes. Mm. And you think all you'd have to do is clear a pub to get that <laughs> turned the other way. It's not just Stroud, but there's there's about... There's about a dozen seats that the Tories are really focusing on, and they think if they can win those, then they're, then they'll be home. Like Bishop Auckland, Southampton, Itchens, another one. Of course, it's a sort of peculiarity of our system that first past the post, you could win the election in just a few seats, and people have said that proportional representation is much fairer when you take the votes of the whole country. But then it's rather nice that towns like Stroud or Bishop Auckland, you have your MP, you know who your MP is. Well, it used to be the the great argument for first past the post was that you didn't end up with um, with uh, with um, a coalition coalition governments. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and what are we you know what, what are we looking at now? Coalitions between Labour and the Libs and the SNP and and I don't think anyone wants to do a coalition with the Tories at the moment. But the other thing, Simon, of course, is Boris's seat is pretty marginal mm. now, isn't it? Mm. And momentum have poured in there um, to try and sway that. Uh, what if he loses it? Well, if he loses it, he's no longer prime minister. No, that's not true. I think he can be prime minister. We're going to have to get our constitutional books out here. But I'll tell you <laughs> what would happen. There would, there would, If he lost his seat, clearly he can't function as prime minister unless he's in the Commons, whatever the rule book says. So some Tory MP would have to fall on their sword exactly. in a rock-solid safe seat and let Boris stand in there in a by-election. And I reckon that Conservative MP who stood down for Boris would probably go straight to the House of Lords. I think that would be such a coincidence. I will be a scandal. <laughs> My favourite comedian, Miriam Margolis, went on TV to defend Jeremy Corbyn over anti-Semitism. As a, as a Jew and a Labour supporter, she felt strongly. And she sort of mentioned during the interview that she didn't think Corbyn was a great leader. But then the interview took a different turn. Well, I think he should step down right now and we'd sail in because people don't want Jeremy Corbyn because, I mean, people, people don't want Jeremy Corbyn as the leader because he's not a very good leader. He's a lovely bloke. But I think Keir Starmer is more acceptable to uh, the country as a whole. And Simon, doesn't that remind you that we're so used to listening to politicians with their pre-prepared lines to just hear someone who says she's a great friend of Jeremy Corbyn's and then Miriam goes on to say, but he's a lousy leader. Well, just I, refreshingly honest. I think if Miriam are going to lead the Labour Party, I think I'd vote for them. <laughs> Twinkle Toads of Vince Cable is nearly as well known for his exploits on Strictly as having led the Lib Dems. Mild-mannered Vince is quitting the Commons at this election. He's been fighting in elections for an amazing nearly 49 years. I asked him why Joe Swinson is faltering, but first we had a trip down memory lane. Sir Vince, what is your first memory of campaigning in a general election? Oh, it was a long time ago uh, as a student, but the first time I was a candidate actually was for the 1970 election when uh, Harold Wilson was standing to be re-elected and lost. And I was up in Glasgow, which is a very different political culture from yes. Twickenham. Were you standing for the Lib Dems in those I, days? I, I wasn't, no. The, the, the old Liberal Party didn't really function in that part of the world, so I was Labour, and I, of course I joined subsequently the SDP and then the uh, Lib Dems. 
Yeah. Now, but you, you, you're standing down at this election, but you've been out campaigning um, this week and you've been York. So what's the, um, as someone who hasn't got a direct vested interest in it, what's the feeling like on the street? Well, uh, I was up in York Outer. It's a very strange, it's the city of my birth and upbringing, so I have a sentimental of attachment course. to it. But York is a peculiar place where it has a, a centre and then there's a donut and the donut is uh, York Outer, which is a suburban, educated, very Lib Demi sort of place. We run all the council seats there. But what are the issues on the street? When you're door knocking now, what are the issues that come up? Well, there isn't any very consistent thread, but on the one side, it's, you know, terror of Corbyn is very real, actually. Terror? Strong as that? Yeah, well, yeah, amongst a lot of middle-class business-type people, it is as strong as that. And on the other side, you know, people just don't trust Boris Johnson, not sure whether to put up with him if they support his views on Brexit. But, yeah, Brexit is an issue. I mean, I know the parties are trying to bring in lots of other stuff, but... Mm. But, you know, this promise which everybody has to spend trillions on everything, I think people just lost all belief in what the politicians can deliver. Mm. Well, on, on the subject of trust in politicians, I mean, your your peak of your political influence really was was when you were in the coalition, you were the business secretary in that Lib Dem, the Cameron Clay coalition. But do you have reason to, to, to regret that now? Isn't that partly what's damaging the Lib Dems, the memory of that coalition amongst your supporters? No, that wasn't what did for us. It, the 2015 election was, if you vote Lib Dem, you get Labour and the SNP. I mean, that was what killed us. Um, you know, they're, 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 it wasn't a great experience for us politically as a party, but it was a high watermark for the country, actually. Uh, we just had um, Caroline Fairburn of the CBI giving a speech that I would have given. But that world is gone, you know. Uh, the idea of business um, and government working, parties working together to solve national problems, it's now become completely polarised between two extremes. It's a very different world. But but is is isn't that the the allegation that the Conservatives are going to are putting this time that vote Lib Dem and get Labour and SNP? Well, they use that, I think. But I think, given what they're offering, the sort of hardline Brexit stuff, that doesn't work in quite the way it did. But yeah, they're doing it. You, I think, you were the one who introduced the the, the rather fruity catchphrase "bollocks to Brexit," if I may say that. Yeah. Uh, that that's been that seems to be watered down now. But there seems to be a feeling that, that the Lib Dems started this election by promising to revoke Article 50. But that was a mistake. What's your view? Well, the language is politer, as you say. I <laughs> moved on to a new generation that doesn't use that kind of language. Joe Swinson's cleaned up the Lib Dems after, after <laughs> you left. Thank goodness for that. Yes, it's, it's a, well, it's, our position was always clear. Now, on the revoke stuff, I mean, I don't think anybody believes we're going to win 350 seats. Well, they did at the beginning. Joe Swinson said well, she was going to be Prime Minister. Well, OK, well, we've moved on. Um, and there is now, I think, a recognition we will do well in parts of the country, but we're not going to get an overall majority, so the revoke issue is purely academic. I mean, our view is to support a referendum, go back to the country and support Remain. I mean, that, that's But that is a change, Vince, because the, the big campaign that the Lib Dems at the start of this election was vote for us and we will revoke Article 50. Now that's been watered down to we want a second referendum. Well, I've always talked about a referendum. Uh, I mean, the issue, I, mean, I did vote for revoking Parliament because in an extreme situation where you're faced with a choice between crashing out and revoking, the revoking is the lesser of two evils. But, but as far as the future is concerned, 
I mean, the, the, the sensible option is to go for a referendum and support a Remain, and that, that, that is certainly doable, and that's what the Lib Dems are, are arguing for. But that's only now going to be done with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, and, 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 and you've just said that's a terrifying prospect. No, no it's not, it's not, it doesn't require Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. We work, before this election, we worked through the logic of what happens if you have a genuinely hung parliament, and you find a neutral who will chair the proceedings unfortunately uh, Ken Clark's gone but you know there would be somebody else who has some credibility and can command the support of the smaller parties but but realistically you're only going to have any you might possibly have a sway over a conservative government Boris Johnson's not going to give you a second referendum yes I think I think it's very likely he's he's so committed to his cause that he's not going to but actually it, it, it it's quite possible that his interest in uh, the remaining prime minister transcends his concerns about Brexit and you can imagine a situation where Johnson does get back with the largest party that's probably the most likely outcome but not with an overall majority what does he then do you, and you may just say, okay, right, well, you know, we're stuck, let the people sort it out. Vince, are you suggesting that ambition might win out over principle with Boris Johnson? Well, it's just possible, yeah, it's just possible. <laughs> Maybe he's got two policies for the election, like he had two essays. Uh, I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head, though. But your, the, the, your successor, Joe Swinson, has come under some criticism. Um, there was one, a, a rather damning opinion poll a week ago said that the, the more people saw of her, the less they liked her. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I recognise that. I mean, I've known her for 10 years. Um, she's actually perfectly likeable and an impressive individual. I mean, she's shown a lot of resilience and the way she's fought back from losing a seat. She was one of my ministers in the coalition government. She was very effective and liked. So I, I don't quite recognise the, the poll you're talking about. So you're not quite as gloomy as some about your party's prospects? No, I'm quite positive about the, the party's prospects. The, the, the aggregate poll ratings don't mean anything because our support's concentrated in 40 to 80 seats where we're, you know, 30% plus and a lot of them will win. The fact that we're getting 5% in some other places is neither here nor there. It simply reflects the way the first-past-the-post system works. The, the issue now is how many of those 40 to 60 seats we get across the line, and that's not reflected in the opinion polls. So let's have a prediction, Vince. The election night polls come in. What's, what's the result? Well, we've got two weeks to do. A lot can happen. But I, I would have thought 40 was a reasonable ballpark, but it could be significantly more or significantly less. 40 lived in seats. Yeah, that's a sort of mid-range. Vince Cable is such a gentleman, isn't he, Simon? Even he couldn't bring himself to say how useless Joe Swinson turned out and called her perfectly likeable, if that's the best he can say about her. And they've gone from revoke to revoke light, and I'm afraid that with the latest poll uh, with the Lib Dems on 11 points, um, they've gone to lead a light. Well, I thought it was rather telling the way when I asked him um, how the Lib Dems had started off saying they were going to stop Brexit, revoke Article 50. Vince just sort of casually said, no, we'll just move on from that. Yes. It's all about a second referendum. They they have moved the goalposts, and I'm, I'm wondering whether they can recover from that. Well, they've had to, and they have. They could see that the, with their completely revoked message, their single message, and a not very impressive leader, um, that they're just, you know, they're, they're hemorrhaging support.
Mm. And and it was interesting because they, they put out one of their new star performers, the former Labour MP, Chukka Ramuna, this week. And in Chukka's speech, in, uh, there was nothing really about revoking Article 50. He just launched a massive attack on Boris Johnson as as Donald Trump's poodle and focused on that. And Simon, I don't know, if, is it just me? But I watched that, um, that speech of Chukka's and he just looked to me, I've known him, you know, reasonably well over the years. He looked so uncomfortable, almost, you know, as though he just didn't want to be there. And he's one, you know, he's a great performer. I was really surprised by the, by the, the sense of discomfort from him. And I wonder if that's what happens sometimes if you really are a Labour man and you flip sides. Well, he's flipped sides more than once. I mean, I, I rate Chuka, but he hasn't quite, um, perhaps he looked uncomfortable because he's worried about um, spilling something on his suit because he always looks, I mean, I, one of the reasons I envy him, he's so beautifully turned out. <laughs> oh, Simon, so are you. <laughs> I fear not. So are you. So, Simon, what's your topical tune this week? It's rapper Storms' new song featuring Ed Sheeran. I think he should team up with Michael Gove. Not as daft as you think. After Stormzy backed Jeremy Corbyn this week, Michael Gove tweeted, he's a far better rapper than political analyst. To which Angela Rayner tweeted back, Gove is crap at both. Gove responded by quoting one of Stormzy's own raps. I won't do the accent. I set trends, dem man copy. But, bizarrely, Michael Gove is an accomplished rapper. He performed one in praise of Boris Johnson at a party last year, riffing away on the opening rap song of the hit musical Hamilton. A flabbergasted Boris looked on as Govesy rapped away, accompanied by a backing track and an aide clicking his fingers to keep in rhythm. Well, Govesy's at least as good looking as Ed Sheeran. So if you're listening, Stormzy, give us a bell. We'll put you in touch. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk. Join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.